Somebody asked me the other day whether or not uh, I'd made any New Year's resolutions. And uh, um, I said, well, I usually don't make New Year's resolutions. I said, but I can make an easy one or try to. And I said, uh, I'm going to try to stay out of the hospital for 2024. So... <laughs> And he was like, well, that's a good, that's a, that's a good resolution to make. And, uh, he knows my background and the history and he's like, yeah, that, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. So, all right. Well, we're going to have our uh, Sunday school classes dismissed. The teens will still be up here because, uh, Mr. Nemeth is uh, helping Chris Hendrick. There's a couple of people are out, uh, helping them move. Uh, they, this was their last day to get everything out and get everything over to that new house. So, uh, just continue to keep them in prayer as you think about that. And, and also just, uh, you know, word of caution, uh, make sure you wash your hands before you put anything in your mouth to eat. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's going around. Uh, uh, teens, you guys can stay up here. Oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure that, <laughs> um, but, uh, one of the things that, um, uh, that, uh, is, uh, Happening is people are starting to talk about uh, giving the ma- putting the mask mandates back on and stuff, and uh, I'm just sitting there going, it's just as simple as wash your hands and don't touch your face. I mean, you know, uh, just 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 be cautious and be careful, but uh, still, uh, just know that uh, obviously it's cold and flu season, so we've got a few people out with that as well. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter three. Uh, we had left off, uh, uh, right around, uh, verse four. Um, and, uh, we had gone through the first, uh, obviously few verses here, kind of did a, a quick outline of the 12, uh, you know, if you will, elementary principles of the Christian life that, uh, Paul addresses here. Uh, we got through, uh, or kind of finishing up with the first one, which is the setting of things, setting your affections on things above. And we talked, uh, uh, quite a bit about that, but in verse uh, four, um, he he makes it clear here um, about one of the reasons why. And in verse four, he says, "When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory." This is a, an important part again to understand why uh, why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, everything that we do is for the glory of God, or should be done for Him. If you cannot give God glory in what you are doing, then it ought not be done. It's just really that simple. Uh, you know, people try to make the, the Christian life more complex, but again, it's, if you know what the Word of God is, you know what pleases Him, you know what uh, makes Him grieved or, uh, if you will, angry, then you will understand very clearly how to accomplish his will, how to please him, and how to bring that glory to him. And that's what we as believers need to continue to have in our mind. And as part of that, uh, part of that uh, uh, mindset is we realize that, you know, when we're setting our affections on things above, our, if you will, reward is in heaven. Uh, the glory that we give to God, all of those things that we see in first, uh, Corinthians chapter 3 that he talks about at the judgment seat of Christ, all of those things occurring, and again, God getting the praise for all of this. Um, here we are talking about our life being hid in Jesus uh, in verse 3, and now he's talking about when we come back. And, and, and the timeline that we always, uh, you know, look at in, in the Christian life and in what's going on right now, and people keep talking about it, you know, the Lord's return is imminent, the Lord's return is imminent. We, we, we as believers, we understand that if we're saved, born again children of God, we are going to be taken out of here, caught up in the air. Uh, we, we get to be forever with the Lord, as it says in Scripture, and, and, and that's again, great comfort with those words. And when we realize that Paul is also kind of giving us that comfort here. He says that when Christ appears for the second advent, not the rapture, not when we're taken out, but for the second advent, when he comes to rule and reign, we are going to appear with him, as he says here in glory. Now, this is an important principle for us to understand. God has his glory. God will always receive his glory. We as you know, human beings, 
sometimes go about to establish, as Paul talks about, vain glory. That glory for us. It's the, it's the lifting up in pride. It's the boasting. It's the, uh, look at how good I am or look at who I am. All of those things. And that takes away from the glory of God. That, that, that diminishes what we're doing for Him. But if we as believers go about to set our affections on things above, God will take care of glorying for us. When we return in glory, we're returning in his presence. We're returning with glorified bodies, as we say. That means bodies that are no longer harmed by disease, by death, by by injury, or anything of that nature. You go back and read over there where it talks about uh, the, the, the army of God, and it's not talking about angels, it's talking about saints with glorified bodies, returning uh, when Jesus Christ comes back, and it says that they will be pierced with swords. Yeah, you're going to get stabbed with a sword, but it's not going to hurt you. It's, it's not going to have the effect that the uh, individual that does, that's trying to repel Christ and repel his believers, uh, keeping them off the earth, it's not going to have an effect on you. That's an amazing thing to think about. That's, I mean, that, that's something to glory about. But again, it's, it's the fact that when you read how Jesus Christ is described in returning, it's not like his first advent that we just had with Christmas, as we talk about. In humility. In a manger. You know, very, 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 if you will, uh, um, not a lot of fanfare. There wasn't a lot of stuff that, you know, uh, people weren't seeing things in the sky other than the shepherds, other than the wise men seeing star. It was pretty small. But when Jesus Christ comes back, everybody's going to know. I mean, just think about that, how he's described as coming back. Eyes as flame of fire, sword coming out of the mouth, uh, you know, all these horses. Behind him with the saints. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing sight to think or to, to, to even, you know, speculate on. But that's his glory. Turn over to Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two. In Galatians chapter two. And in verse 20. Paul says this, and he says, uh, I am, uh, oh, let's see here. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God, uh, who loved me and gave himself for me. This, again, is reference to Jesus Christ, who is our life, as he says. Verse 4 makes it very clear what we're living for, who we're living for. He says, when Christ, who is our life. Here Paul again tells the church at Galatia something similar. He says, I'm not living for myself. I'm not living to please my flesh. I'm not living for for for, for the physical things of this life. And why is that? Because the physical things of this life, they fade away. They disappear. They, they they go away. In the end, the, the the Bible makes it clear that that everything that is on this earth, everything that is of this earth, burns up. It's gone. It, it doesn't exist anymore. But what we do for Jesus Christ, that will continue on. That's His glory we're talking about. Turn over First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Again, this is a, a passage that very clearly speaks about uh, the return of Christ. And, uh, you know, he, he mentions this in uh, verse 50, First uh, Corinthians 15. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. What is he talking about? 
saying that very clearly your body cannot attain to eternal life the way it currently is. You need Jesus Christ. You're not going to live forever in this body. This body is going to be changed. And he makes mention of that in verse 51, where he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And when he says when we shall not all sleep, he's talking about we're not all going to die. Some of us are going to live further. And what I mean by that is, is that we don't experience the physical death. If Jesus Christ comes and takes us out of here in the rapture, uh, in, in our lifetime, then we won't see death. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But some people, they don't. They pass away. And that happens. But, He says, and he gives emphasis here and gives comfort. He says, but we shall all be changed. Meaning those that have passed away and those that are caught up in the rapture, we all will have something different. That is our different new creation of a body that is going to be free from all of those things that currently plague us. And that's something to rejoice about. Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians. Talks about how we are redeemed, but our body is not redeemed yet. There will be a day when it is, when we have that new body. And in verse 52, it says, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He's talking about when this happens, when this occurs. For this corruptible, this body, if you will, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Man is constantly trying to find ways to extend life. I mean, whether it's uh, uh, eat fewer eggs and eat more vegetables, or eat more eggs and eat fewer vegetables, or whether it's uh, work out all day or don't work out all day, or you only need two minutes of workout every day or something of that nature, you need 30 minutes. And doctors and everybody and all these quote-unquote experts uh, stumble over themselves trying to figure out, you know, how are they going to extend. I remember uh, back in the day hearing about things of... Uh, uh, the, the, the cryogenics where everybody's going to, you know, they were cutting off their heads and freezing them and things of that nature, freezing the whole bodies uh, with the, the idea that one day technology would allow them to be reconnected to their body or, uh, if you will, revive their body and that they would be able to live forever and so on and so forth. Um, I don't know about you. The perfect example is the other day. Uh, you know, back in November or September of 2022, uh, I had purchased a package of ground pork with the intention on making my own, you know, Chinese dumplings and things of that nature. Uh, and it sat in the freezer. And then, of course, all the stuff, you know, happened in 2023 and it kind of gets pushed around in the freezer and, you know, shifted from shelf to shelf to shelf to the back and so on and so forth. And the other day, pulling it out and looking at it, and Emma looks at it, and she goes, this thing's from November 2022. She's like, you want to save that? I'm like, no. Because once you freeze something, you know it's, you know, after about a year, it's not going to taste that good. We throw it away. People are trying to freeze their bodies thinking it's going to preserve. It's not. It's not going to be the same. People are trying to find ways of, you know, with all the stem cell research and everything that they're trying to do, trying to extend life. But the only way that we're going to put on immortality is by Jesus Christ. That's it. Right now, as it currently stands, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed that we'll be alive to see tomorrow. We're not guaranteed any of that. But what we are guaranteed, and what we are promised as believers, is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Meaning that if we die right now, we are going to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. 
We don't have a glorified body yet, because this is what he's talking about when that's going to happen. But we're with him. And praise the Lord for that. That's that's something to glory about. That's something when we look at uh, you know, first, excuse me, Colossians chapter three, verse four. When we appear in glory, that's going to be a spectacular sight to see. Turn over to Romans chapter eight, really quickly. Romans chapter eight. <clears throat> Paul makes a couple of mentions about this uh, also here in Romans. <clears throat> And in verse 16, it says, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit of God and our spirit. That we are the children of God. Now again, let's just clarify. Not everybody is a child of God. People walk around and they say, well, you know, all humans, we're all children of God. No, 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 you're not. The only way you get to be a child of God is if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, you're a children of wrath, you're a child of disobedience, or you're a child of the devil. But all three of those, they're not good. But not everybody is a child of God. And he says right here that the children of God bear witness with his Holy Spirit. That's an important thing to understand. That's an important thing to understand, that there is, if you will, a congruence. There is an agreement. There is a uh, uh, working together. That's what it is. The Holy Spirit teaches us, guides us, shows us, comforts us. All of these things that the Scripture talks about, that's what we need. The person that has not trusted Christ as their Savior does not have that. The Holy Spirit is not working in their life in the same way that he does with a Christian. He may be working in their life to convict them of their sin and the need for salvation. But as far as guiding them and directing them in the way that uh, we as believers are, that no, they're not being led that way. But take a look here in verse 17. He says, and if children, then heirs. Then heirs. You have a child, they become an heir. They get whatever you leave behind when you pass. Heirs to God, joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ. I that, that could preach on its own, and I'm not going to go into that, but I just want you to think about that. Joint heirs with Christ. What Christ has, we are going to receive. He's got a glorified body. He's got, you know, uh, if you will, uh, uh, that relation with, with, with God, even though he is God, uh, the, the, there's, there's all the things in heaven that are his, those things that he promises to us, not physical things, but all those spiritual things, join heirs, eternal life, that we as he says here, uh, join heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And we do suffer in this life. We do go through things in this flesh. But here he says, we're going to be glorified together with him. That, that, that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ now, now doesn't stop when the millennial kingdom starts. It continues on. It continues on for eternity. And that's something that should be very comforting to the believer, which is why we set our affections on things above. Why? Because it's eternal. It's eternal. It's not temporal. It's not something that is going to fade away or corrupt or, or rust or somebody's going to steal it, as the scripture says. Take a look back over in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 5, here's the second principle. The first principle that we saw in verse 2 was set your affections on things above. This, this uh, second principle that we see is found in verse 5. He says, mortify therefore your members. Now this is an important principle. I'm going to get into more detail about it. We've just kind of glanced some, you know, kind of a surface level thing when we were talking about affections. But here he says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, 
fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So he kind of gives this understanding of we need to make sure that we are dead to sin. We have to go through the process of mortifying, meaning that this is not something that is just going to happen. You know, anytime I counsel somebody, anytime I'm talking to them about the Christian life, I make it clear. There is no magic Jesus pill. You can't pop a pill and then fix all of your problems just like that. The, the, the Western society has that mentality. You got a problem? Take a pill. You're deficient in this vitamin? Take a pill. You need to correct something over here with what's going on in your body or that shouldn't be happening? Take a pill. Now, obviously, those pills are not, you know, God-ordained, and they cause problems from time to time. When I was younger, I took a pill for a a bit of some gastrointestinal issues for a period of time, and then uh, I got so sick of it because it was making me sick, and I just discontinued it. Well, come to find out, the FDA pulls it off the market a few years later because it winds up killing people. Oh. Okay. (laughs) Pills don't fix everything. What fixes everything is having the mind of Christ. Having that heart that's deciding to say, I'm going to purpose to do what is right. And as part of that, we have to kill those other desires and lusts that are in our flesh. Sometimes we build up bad habits that we, we just do but excuse me, by nature. Because we've just kind of, if you will, do the muscle memory thing. I've said this before and I'll, I'll say it again. Um, uh, muscle memory is, is, is okay as long as you use cognitive ability to discern while you're doing it. If muscle memory, if you just rely on muscle memory and the muscles to do what they're supposed to be doing uh, without thinking it through, you'll wind up in a, just a whole heap of trouble. There is an instructor, a firearms instructor, and he's, let's put it this way, he's pretty good. And he was talking about muscle memory and he was saying, when you learn to draw a pistol, when you learn to shoot and you learn to shoot fast and, and accurate, he said, you cannot just rely on muscle memory. He says it must be cognitive. You must think. You must train yourself to think in an instant. In an instant. And I'm like, man, this, this guy's preaching and he doesn't even know it. And he demonstrates it, and he starts by facing away from the target. And on the target stand are different colored balloons. And the individual that's holding the the little buzzer that beeps, signaling when he can turn around and shoot, is supposed to call out one of the colors, and that's what the color he's supposed to shoot. Now, he has no idea where they are on that thing. He doesn't know whether the red one's on the top or whether it's on the bottom or the blue one's in the middle or whatever. All he knows is that he hears the buzzer and he hears the word blue. He turns around and has to shoot the blue balloon. But what does that mean? He has to turn around and he cannot rely on muscle memory. He has to make a cognitive decision. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. If you're going to set your affections on things above, you cannot allow yourself to just get into, if you will, autopilot mode. There is no autopilot with a Christian life. You have to make the decision, as he says here, to mortify, to kill, to put down, to do away with. And what is it specifically? He says, our members which are on on earth. 
meaning our bodies. Now, he's not talking about suicide or physically, you know, physical death, but what he's talking about are the desires of the flesh. Take a look at a couple other passages. Go over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and in verse 11, he says, uh, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. He makes it very clear here, the problem is the fleshly lusts that get in the way. That's a big issue. As a believer, he says we are to abstain from them. We do not indulge in them. We do not cater to them. You know, sometimes people talk about, you know, having issues with dealing with sin and dealing with problems. And, 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 and I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sometimes though, it's, it's not, the sin is not viewed as exceeding sinful. They're not, if you will, resisting unto blood. What they do is they take that sin and it becomes a pet. It's their pet sin. And they feed it and they coddle it and they cater to it and, and they just go, well, that's just the way I am. No, it's not. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So yeah, you can have the victory because he already won it. As we talked about in chapter two. But when Christ is the preeminence, which again is the whole concept behind the book of Colossians, Christ being preeminent in our life, meaning he's number one. He's the first one we think about whenever we do anything. Before we act, he's the first one that we go to to consult, is this right or is this wrong? And when it comes to this decision-making process where we're abstaining from fleshly lusts and we're making decisions like this, it means that we, we, we say, okay, is this something that Jesus would do? Is this something that Christ would do? Is this something that would glorify God? Is this something that is in his will? If not, we need to put that thought or that deed or that action down. Do away with it. Here, Peter says, abstain from fleshly. Let's turn to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Chapter 4 in 1 Peter. He says in verse 2, he says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. He's talking about somebody here, as he says in this this part, uh, that has armed themselves with this mind that he has suffered in the flesh that ceased from sin. That, that, that our concept and our mind should be this, is that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross for our sins. Why in the world would we want to continue in that? Why in the world would we want to progress further down that, that, if you, that road, if you will, of, of, of sin when Christ has already taken care of it for us? We're not supposed to. We're supposed to cease from sin in verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men. You don't live in a fleshly, lusting world that is driven by mankind. We are supposed to be doing, as he says here, the will of God. The rest of your life should be devoted to his will. Not yours, not anyone else's, but God's. That's why it becomes imperative the believer understands and knows what the will of God is. Otherwise, you're never going to please God with your life. You're never going to please God with your life. And you're going to live in a world that you're a frustration and just, you know, difficulty because of that. Because you're not fulfilling your purpose, what God has intended. Take a look at another passage. Go over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, again, makes it pretty clear. 
about what we do. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, and he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? After you've trusted Christ as your Savior, should you be continuing in sin? Verse 2 answers it in two words. God forbid. Have you ever been forbidden to do something? You're not allowed to do this. Whether it's by physical restraint, whether it's by words, however it is, you're not allowed to do that. There is, if you will, it's forbidden. That's the way God views sin in our life as believers. It should be forbidden. It should be forbidden. He says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If we consider ourselves dead to sin, meaning that sin has no effect, because we haven't set our affections on it, has no effect on us, then guess what? We consider ourselves dead to it. How are we going to continue longer living in that sin if we're dead to it? If something's dead, it doesn't live any longer. Now, we have a life in Christ, but we should be dead to sin. Take a look at verse 6. In verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That's that old sinful nature. It's that old, the old deeds that you used to do, that child of disobedience, that child of wrath. It's crucified on the cross with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that he henceforth, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That's the concept. We keep a mindset that says, I am dead to the sinful influences. You ever seen that person that is completely unaffected by things that go on around them? I mean, somebody could strike up a a, a 200-piece band right next to them and they wouldn't even bat an eye. Small, small bomb could go off near them and they wouldn't even, you know, doesn't even affect them. You know, sometimes we would call that person, uh, if you will, a bit oblivious, but that's a person that's walking around in some ignorance. But I'm talking about the person that chooses not to be affected by those things. They make a decision, they make a choice. Whatever happens around them, they're not going to be affected by it. The same should be true with the way that we operate around sin. We should be able to walk through this life, continue on, all the temptations around us, trying to get us, trying to pull us away, trying to destroy our life, trying to trip us up, trying to, to do whatever it may, whatever it takes to get us off the path, out of the will of God, all those things, we should be able to walk through and walk away, you know, just completely ignoring it, not even, if you will, being bothered by that because we're dead to them. They have no effect on us any longer. And this is why he mentions in verse 5 that thing about inordinate affection, the wrong kind of affection. The wrong kind of desires. Take a look at chapter 13 of the book of Romans, Romans 13, 4, uh, excuse me, 14. Romans 13, 14. He says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. This is a verse that every Christian should have memorized. And they should have it, if you will, imprinted upon them, if you will, branded into their mind. Why? Because if we do not give provision to the flesh, the flesh will not want that. Essentially, you starve it to death. Provisions are the things that we need for life. Water. Food. People, when you know, they used to say when they would go uh, across the country in the wagon trains and 
you know, settling certain parts, they would take along with them provisions. Those provisions were the food and the water that were necessary to continue to live. If we, as he says here, make no provision for the flesh, meaning we don't feed it, we don't water it, we don't encourage it, we don't enable it, then we can't have that victory the way that Christ has given it to us. This is what our believer is supposed to be doing. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our provision for life, by the way. How we live in Jesus Christ, does he not say that his word is water and food, if you will, meat to us? Over there in John chapter 4, did you ever notice when Jesus Christ was approached by the apostles, the disciples that came to him, after they went to go get meat, and he had the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, she leaves her pots, goes, runs into the city uh, to go tell all of the people, the men specifically, say, come and see this, the, you know, the Messiah. He's here. He told me everything that I've ever done. And they, they're all getting ready to come out. Meantime, the disciples are there and they're trying to give Jesus Christ food and says, you need to eat. And he says that he, essentially he's already eaten. He says, I have meat that you know not of. And he know what his meat is to do the will of God. This is, again, is why it's important to understand the will of God in the life of a believer. It is your meat. People are like, well, the meat comes from the word of God. Yes, it does. But it also comes from doing it. Not just hearing it, but actually doing it. Over to the book of James that we're talking about on Wednesday. If you're going to exhibit some type of a faith, you better be demonstrating that there's something connected to that, which is the works. There's nothing more irritating than watching a Christian, a supposed Christian, walk around and say, well, I'm a Christian, and then doing everything that God says don't do. That's not, that's not what God wants us to do. That's a person that is living in the flesh that is walking in the flesh, that is fulfilling the lusts thereof. But if a person puts on Christ, which is a purposive event, I got up this morning, I put on a suit. I put on a shirt. I put on a tie. It was purposed. I looked at my shirts. I said, which one do I want to wear? I want to wear the light blue one. What tie do I want to wear? I want to wear something that matches. So I select my little blue flower tie, the yellow background, put that on, tie it on purposefully for that to, you know, to do that. That's the way we should be every single day in our Christian life, purposing that we put on Jesus Christ. I'm going to put on his will. I'm going to put on his purpose. I'm going to put on his mind. I'm going to put on the armor of God. I'm going to put all these things on so that I can fulfill what God is asking me to do on a day-to-day basis. I don't go through that action. I don't go through those those steps. I try to do it on autopilot. I will fail during the day. I will stumble and fall. I will enter into sin. I will fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's why God says, put on Christ. Multiple areas in scripture, he says, put on Christ. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Turn to one final passage. Go over to the book of Galatians. This is one final passage on this point, I should say. Book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Take a look at verse 16, what I was just talking about. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The reason why people, believers, Christians, sin, is because they are no longer in step with God. 
They're no longer in the path of God. They're no longer in the way or the direction of God. They're choosing to walk in their own flesh. And God says, that's not how we are to behave. He says very clearly here, he says that if, if we walk in the flesh, or excuse me, walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That means that if we have a hard time with the flesh, and we have a hard time dealing with those lusts, and we have a hard time mortifying it, then we need to take a look at what is my Christian walk? I need to start analyzing. I need to go through it. I need to say, okay, am I limping along? Am I being drugged in this Christian life? I mean, uh, you know, dragged behind uh, the Lord? I mean, how, how is it that I'm moving forward? Am I moving forward at all? I mean, we should go through the process of self, if you will, reflection, self-judgment, self-analyzation, according to the Word of God. We should ask the Lord to, to help guide us in those thoughts and those processes of, okay, well, I need to make some decisions. Lord, search me and try me. I want to make sure that I'm making the right decisions, that it's being affected, that I'm being affected by the right things. And the end result is, is if I'm looking at my walk and I realize I'm no longer walking, that I'm at a standstill, then I've listened to something that I shouldn't have. Whether it's me or whether it's the influence of the world. You go back over there in Psalm chapter 1 and you notice the progression. Notice the progression. It starts off with a walk. Starts well, then it goes to a stand, and then it goes down to sitting. And the, the the individual that is blessed is the person that does not walk, stand, or sit with those that are contrary to God. Sinners, ungodly, scornful, those type of individuals. Which is why we have to put down our flesh, mortify it so that we can please God. Now, we are children of God, as we just talked about. Back in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now, praise God, we're not children of disobedience. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're a child of God. But let's make it pretty clear. God exhibits anger and wrath towards those that refuse to obey. To those that refuse to listen. To those that will not be corrected. And wrath comes. The unbeliever wakes up in hell. There's wrath. Then they're pulled out of hell and thrown into a lake of fire. There's wrath. Talk about wrath on this earth. Tribulation period. God pouring out his wrath on on flesh. Praise God, we're not going to be there if you're trusting Christ as your Savior. But very clearly, let's understand, Paul's getting at God hates these things. He does not like these things. And he says in verse 5 there, he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And he goes through a list. Fornication. Those are physical, sexual lusts. And he says, no. You need to mortify it. Kill it. Shouldn't be in your body. That means you've really got to check what's in your heart, what's affected your heart, and you also have to check what is your mind thinking about. He talks about uncleanness, living in the filth of the world. James says true religion is to live unspotted from the world, meaning that the things that that, that are filthy to God, things that are unclean, That was the job of the Levites, to show what was clean and what was unclean. Not just in the physical form, but in the spiritual. 
There's a lot of unclean things. People have unclean thoughts. People can't control their actions. And cleanness is, he's not just talking about being tidy and washing your hands and brushing your hair and uh, brushing your teeth and things like that. He's talking about uncleanness as in filthiness inside a person. Just everything that comes out of their mouth is filthy. Everything they think about is filthy. God says that needs to be killed. Inordinate affection. The wrong kind of affection. If you will, inordinate affection. You see, the, if you will, a little bit of the root of the word ordain in there. You are not specifically purposed to be affected by certain things. But we allow certain things to affect us that we should not. There are things that God says that you're supposed to be affected by. Spiritual things, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, preaching, teaching, edification, singing praises, all of those things are supposed to affect you. What's not supposed to affect you is what the world thinks, what the world wants, yourself, glorying in yourself, main glory as we talked about, things of that nature. All of those things, they're inordinate affections. They affect what you do in this life. They affect how you think. They affect what your, 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 your path is going to be. He says that needs to be killed. Evil concupiscence. We talked about concupiscence the other day. That's just this, if you will, this desire to sin and the catering of lust. It's just, you're so sinful that you continue in sin because that's what you want to do. Now, notice he mentions it and calls it evil. Anything that is evil is harmful. It's dangerous. It's not good for a human being. And continuing on and just continuing in sin and relishing in that sin and desiring that sin, and if you will, lusting to sin, God says that's evil. That's a harmful thing. As we continue on with that list, he says covetousness. Wanting what God hasn't given you. It's not just wanting something. It's wanting what God hasn't given you. It's the uncontent, unthankful lifestyle. And why is that? Because as he says here, which is idolatry, he makes that comparison to show how bad it's considered. Because that covetousness becomes all of what you think about. Whatever it is you're coveting, it's all you think about. It's all you want. And it occupies your mind. It becomes a god to you. It rules and reigns over you. You live your life to please or to obtain whatever that covetousness is. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's a pride-filled thing. Because people then begin to, whatever that was. Here we go. <laughs> the fly. Um, people, you know, begin to, covet after those things that they cannot have, that God has not given to them, that maybe even God said that they shouldn't have. The other day, I was driving down to Portland, and I saw the big old billboard. It said, Powerball, $760 million. And I'm sitting there going, what in the world is somebody going to do with that? What in the world would you do with that money? People are like, oh, I'd find a way. Yeah, I'm sure we would. I'm sure we would spend it on all sorts of stuff that we don't need. That we don't need. I'm waiting for the day that some Christian decides to play the lotto and turns around and they go, what are you going to do with the money? And turns around and says, I'm going to give it all to missions. But let's put it this way. God doesn't need you to win the lotto to provide for those missionaries. He's already taken care of them long before you even thought 
So don't sit there and think, well, I'm going to play the lotto to provide for missionaries. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. But it becomes the mindset of that person. They become so fixated on it that that becomes their God and they serve that which they covet. He says, all these things, the wrath of God comes on it. We as believers need to make sure we're mortifying our members. We're killing it every single day. The thought comes up, put it down. That desire is there, put it with a godly desire. Replace it with a godly desire. And we'll find out more because in verse 8, he makes it pretty clear. He says, but uh, but ye now, uh, now ye also put off all these things. And he starts going through. And then in verse 10, he says, put on the new man. Put on the new man. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about verse 7 because he makes mention of, says, this is what you were before time. Let's always keep that in mind. We once walked that way. We should not walk that way again. But we'll see that, uh, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you for what you've provided for us in your word. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to think and meditate and study the book of Colossians, that, Lord, it will become very clear to us that uh, you are preeminent and should be preeminent in our lives and everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that we think. And, Lord, again, I just thank you for this time. I pray you just continue to bless as we uh, get ready for our morning services. And that, Lord, you would just speak to us and uh, use your word to mold us and to shape us to those believers that you desire us to be. And this I ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.